Good evening, brothers and sisters. I'd like to begin this evening by going back to Matthew 5. So let us read Matthew 5, the first five verses once more. Let's rise to hear God's word. And seeing the multitudes, Jesus went up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Amen. Please be seated. Brothers and sisters, this topic this weekend I think is essential for us to consider the topic of meekness, humility in a day like this. Our nations, our world is crying out for this message. We live in the proudest age, I think we could say, in all of human history. Man has come into his own. Man has come to the point where he feels he has it made. He has more prosperity than he has ever enjoyed. He's developed more science. The technology that we have appreciated over the last hundred years has been far and above and beyond anything that we have ever experienced before. Man has come into his own. And our nation itself is proud. That's the issue. That's the problem today. More than anything else, I think our nation is facing this issue. Make America great again. That was the conservative line. That was the hope of the nation some four to six years ago. But I'm here to say we didn't need to make America great again. We needed to make America humble again. But, uh, but there weren't any red hats declaring that message, were there? So it wasn't just the right, it was the left as well, the pride marches, the institutions, science, education, etc. It's really about the proudest era that we have ever experienced. And as I see it, it was a great irony, it was a providential irony that the pride of man was humbled during the COVID years. That the, the most humbling period of time that we have experienced in our lifetime occurred exactly a year after the greatest pride marches in the history of mankind were held in the major cities around the world. Pride comes before a fall, and this nation and all the nations are cruising for a bruising. But it's not just the nations, it's also the church, the churches. I believe that the Gentile church has boasted against the branches. I believe that Romans 11 is happening. The Jews are coming in. The Gentiles are going out. Church attendance in Britain is now at 2%, down from 40% at the turn of the 20th century. The heavy hand of God's judgment has come down upon the Western church. And it is affecting America as well. 
The greatest need of the day is humility. But dare we preach on pride and humility, who is sufficient for these things? I don't know why they chose me for this task, but it is a risk, isn't it, to preach on these things? Pride is deceptive. There are a thousand varieties of pride. Perhaps when we finally discover humility and experience some humility in our lives, pride shows up with the party hats for the celebration. It's hard to get away from it. But here we have before us the text, The meek shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So let us define the word meek. In the Hebrew, the word means lowly. Just to be low. To, uh, as Jesus put it, come to the party and begin in the shoe closet. And if you're invited up to the front table, so be it, but we always begin in the shoe closet, don't we? That's the idea of lowliness or humility or meekness. The Greek word has got a few more connotations to it, strength and reserve, avoiding unnecessary harshness, yet without compromising or being too slow to use necessary force. Uh, carefully calibrated strength, a mildness, a recognition that we cannot sovereignly control the situation, but must always be dependent on God who is sovereign. Therefore, we are not hurried, we are not rushing in to control the situation, but only to be a faithful servant of God for the thing that He has given us to do. So, that's a broad way of presenting the word meek from the Greek. But uh, this is the first grace. We, we pray for the Holy Spirit's presence this weekend, don't we? We're, we're asking the Holy Spirit to come to visit us, to pour out His gifts, His graces upon us. And this is really considered the first grace, the first ground in which the other graces will grow. And so that's why we begin the teachings of Jesus in the Beatitudes with the poverty in spirit, mourning, and meekness. That's what comes first, and then the other graces follow. So this is always first base. Children, when you're playing baseball, you cannot go to second base. You've got to go to first base first. When the little guys are playing t-ball, they run over the pitcher and try to get the second base, but uh, you're actually supposed to go all the way around. You've got to go to first base first, and then you go to second base. And, and that's the way it is with the spiritual graces. It's humility first, always Humility first. Now, the second thing I want to say about humility, these are just introductory comments, is that humility is first and foremost Godward. It is not me in reference to you, but me in reference to God. Humility has to do with our position in reference to God. Now, in a man-centered worldview, we're concerned with one another first and foremost. So we think about ourselves being better than the other person, as Brother Steve shared last night. We think of ourselves as being better looking than somebody else, but not just that, but humbled before somebody else or shamed before somebody else. But that's not the biblical concept of humility. Fundamentally, the idea of being humble is to be lowly and humble before God. 
That's why we're instructed in 1 Peter 5 and James 4 to humble ourselves before the mighty hand of God. Or humble yourself in the sight of the Lord and He will lift you up. So it's important for us to realize that humility really doesn't have that much to do with how we look at each other, but it has to do with how we see ourselves in the face of God Himself. So therefore, the big question for all of us is, who are you? And who am I? See, it's identity of who we are in the universe, or who are we in, the, in reference to God's creation. Now, natural man or humanistic man is schizo on this. He's always caught between two ideologies. Either he's cosmic dust, or he's God. So the materialist is always seeing himself as cosmic dust floating around the universe of pure chance where there is no real reason for him existing. But then he moves on into a psychology classroom where he's told that he is a god or a god wannabe and he needs to define himself, define his own ethics and turn himself into God. So he's sort of in this tension all the time between whether he is cosmic dust or God. You can see how this could create a rather insane person after a while. If he moves from one perspective to another in any given hour, he's going to be quite uh, insane as he seeks out an excuse of some sort to avoid his real position before God, and that is he is created in the image of God with a responsibility to the true and living God. But that's the thing he wants to avoid. But for us, brothers and sisters, today is we are, we are God's creation. We, we are those who are created in the image of God with a purpose for life, and that is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. So let's, let's consider ourselves. And what is the consideration of our minds? What is the dominating factor in our lives? And we've said before in our church, what is that which looms large in our minds? How do we see ourselves in reference to? To God. Here we are confronted by God, the one with whom we have to do. So there are, as I see it, four factors or four humbling factors to consider as we see ourselves in reference to God. The first is that we are humbled before the mighty hand of God. We see ourselves in reference to God as, as the creator to the creature, as the one who is infinite in reference to the one who is finite, the one who is Utterly dependent, that is ourselves, in reference to the the one who is utterly independent and has no need of anything else. We are utterly undeserving of any and all glory ourselves compared to the one who is completely deserving of all the glory and honor. So you see we have this contrast. We see ourselves in reference to God. We see our dependence upon God. That's the power of God that upholds us every second of the day. What foolishness it is to consider even for a moment that we are not dependent upon Him for life and for breath and for food and sustenance. To even consider for a moment that we could survive independent of God's provision or independent of God's air or oxygen. You know, to step out for just a second and say, I don't need God and I don't need His oxygen. I'll do just fine without it, would be utter foolishness, wouldn't it? It doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter if it's an unbeliever, an atheist, or anybody else. It would be a foolish thing, utterly foolish, 
to think for a moment that we are dependent or independent of God or not dependent upon God for our life and our oxygen. So God is all. God is, God is everything. God is the source of all life. God is the source of all wisdom. God is the source of all power. And we are nothing, but we are the work of God who is all working in all. Secondly, the second consideration as we see ourselves in reference to God is we are humbled, not just in terms of our finitude or in terms of our dependence upon God, but we are humbled before the holiness of God. God is holy and we are not. Our sins humble us. We're sensitive of our sinfulness, our lack of holiness in the presence of God who is holy. And so as the prophets, as the apostles come into contact with the living God, there's this sense of one's lack of holiness. And Isaiah says, woe is me, I am undone. And Job puts a hand to his mouth. And John falls dead at the feet of Jesus, as it were. Struck with the great contrast between the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. So again, this is what humbles us, brothers and sisters, to consider even for a moment that we could come into the presence of God without the blood of Jesus Christ paving the way to us in the holiest of holies. Thirdly, more than all of this, it's grace that humbles us. God's grace that He shows to us humbles us. We see our insufficiency, our undeservedness in the face of God's all-sufficiency His impeccable justice and infinite love and mercy. So once again I ask, what is it that looms large as you consider yourself, as you consider your place, as you consider who you are in the presence of God who is all holy, all sufficient, perfectly just, and of course, of course, all all merciful and gracious as well. Consideration that my wife and I have been discussing recently is the four possibilities, or rather the five possibilities of what tends to loom large in our minds. I'm talking about right now. I'm talking about, you know, this afternoon or tomorrow morning. As you're, you're, what are the things that your mind is feeding on throughout the day? Uh, what are the things that loom large in your mind? Not, not the thing you glance at from time to time. You come to a service like this and hear something about the, the, inf- the finitude of God, the infinitude of God and His justice and holiness and graciousness and such. And you take a look at that, but what is it that you think about most of the time? What is the thing that is overwhelming in your, in your attention, in the way you think about life and everything else? And here are the five possibilities Another person's offense against you. Number two, the other person's offense against God. Number three, your offense against the other person. Number four, your offense against God. So of those four things, what is it that that looms large in your mind? What what are the things that, that overwhelm you and draws your attention and drowns out everything else in, in, your, in your life, is it, is it your justice or is it God's justice? Is it, is it your position in reference to somebody else's position? Or is it the holiness of God in reference to yourself or in reference uh, to others? 
Or here's the fifth. I add a fifth to it, and that's God's forgiveness for you. You see, it's the, the, the forgiveness that God gives to you for your violations of His law and, and f- for your violation of His justice should be the big thing in your mind that God should forgive your sins. This is the thing that, that should dominate your life. Not, not, we, we, we move from your sin against God to God's forgiveness for you, and this becomes the hundred billion ton reality that overwhelms all other realities in your mind and life. This is the dominating object in your mind's eye. So again, you're not thinking in terms of what your brother is doing, what your sister is doing. There isn't this comparison or this personal offense taken against somebody else, but you're you're, you're aware of the fact that you've sinned against God and you're a hell-deserving sinner. You, by nature, were heading towards eternal judgment, and yet the Son of God steps in and your sins are forgiven. And that becomes the thing that dominates everything else in your life. So all of the other issues of life become of less importance than these things. Who am I next to my brother? We're both hell-deserving sinners standing right next to each other, receiving the grace of God, divine blood dripping down upon us, cleansing us from all unrighteousness. How am I better than my brother? How am I more deserving than my brother? My big takeaway from last night was, from Brother Steve's message, was that beggars get everything. Tried to synopsize about 30 minutes of his message into this. Beggars get everything. Just think about that. For one thing, a beggar comparing himself to another beggar doesn't make a lot of sense, does it? They're all down there equally in need of God's grace. And so there's no sense in beggars comparing themselves to other beggars. But if beggars receive everything, then what do they need from anybody else? What are we competing for? Why would beggars compete against beggars? And why would the beggars who have received everything want to compete with each other? Because they have already received everything anyway. Isn't that a beautiful message? I think Steve needs to preach that one again. So we are humbled at the cross, standing before Jesus himself, the very Son of God. Now, I, I believe that as, as, as this message and as the Holy Spirit works in us, and we begin to, to exemplify this amazing grace of God in our lives, this will be the beginning of revival. I don't believe that we will see revival. and There, there is such hard-heartedness in our churches still. There's still such weakness in terms of love. And one of our brothers said, we're just crying out for the reviving work of the Holy Spirit in our churches, reviving our love for each other and, 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 and bringing a conviction of sin and, and converting sinners. We, we don't have that many sinners coming in and, and being converted in our churches. I think one of the reasons is we need more people converted in our churches first. And, and, but the beginning of this, I believe, brothers and sisters, is humility because we know that the beginning of any recognition of the divine grace of God in Jesus Christ will only come by a sense of our sin, our vileness. Just reading a little bit more from uh, 
David Brainerd's diaries just last weekend, and just it was amazing the sense that he had of his own sinfulness and vileness, and he was wrestling with God with these things and presenting himself before God, crying out for his mercy, and God poured out his mercy upon this man. He, he, he sensed the, the intense mercy and grace of God upon him, and, and that was what prepared him to take the gospel for the first time to the Native Americans and shut down the demon worship and preach for the first time to, to some of these tribes who had not heard the gospel in 3,000 years where Satan had such uh, control over all that was happening in that area of the world. Uh, praise be to God, there was such breakthrough, but it came by revival and it came, as I saw it, by the, the humility, the contriteness of heart, the sense of his own vileness and his sinfulness before God and the beauty and the glory of Christ and his redemption that just swept over his soul, prepared for that amazing revival that was happening in the 1730s and 30s and 40s amongst the Native Americans. So I believe the beginning of revival is right here. This is the great need for the hour. Humility, meekness, a recognition of who we are before God and, and without this, our churches are doomed. Our denominations are doomed. Our, our children, future generations in this denomination will not be in the church 30, 40 years from now. If, if we don't see this spirit of humility sweeping across this denomination and the Holy Spirit of God pouring out this conviction of sin and this recognition of the beauties of Christ in our church services every Sunday, I know it doesn't just happen in revival meetings, it happens throughout the week and on Sundays, and, and then there's this, this coming alive of the people of God and recognizing the preciousness of the gospel of Christ, and, 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 and their thirst and hunger for the word of God just increases, and then we begin to see the gospel taking root in our churches again, and hopefully by God's grace it begins to penetrate into the generations and we see true revival that turns into a true reformation over the generations. May God bring that to us. But it's not going to happen without the first grace of the Holy Spirit in us. And I, brothers and sisters, I believe that, that we will recognize it when it happens. There's something about pride and proudful people, and I've seen this about myself, I share this with some of my brothers we, we don't understand pride if we are proud. We won't recognize a humble person if we are a proud person. We will not be impressed with humility. If we have a pride issue in our lives and the most humble person in this denomination sits down in front of us, we are not going to recognize that humility. We will not recognize that grace and the preciousness of that Holy Spirit gift if we have this pride, it will only be by humility that we'll recognize that we have been humbled or that we are the humble people or that we have been made humble by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Andrew Murray is one of the best revivalists of the 20th century during a brief time of revival in South Africa, and he's got a really good book on humility. I recommend that everybody read it. It's very short. Everything Andrew Murray writes is very short, but you have to meditate on every word of it. Here's what he says about humility. All lack of love, all indifference to the needs, the feelings, the weakness of others, all sharp and hateful judgments and utterances so often excused under the plea of being outright and honest, Listen, elders, pastors as well, 
all manifestations of temper and touchiness and irritation, all feelings of bitterness and estrangement have their root in nothing but pride that ever seeks itself. This devilish pride creeps in almost everywhere, even in the assembly of the saints. What would be the effect if towards fellow saints in the world, believers were really permanently guided by the humility of Jesus? Here he says, cry day and night for it. Homework for the next week or two. Cry day and night for it. Seek the humility of Jesus. Sink down deeper into it every day. Praise God that he brings humility to us. We trust he will do that as we cry out. By the way, we cry out for the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit giftings of humility. The Father will give us the Spirit. He's promised it, hasn't he? He won't give us a serpent. He'll give us a fish. He does it every time. So every day, every week, brothers and sisters, let's cry out for the Holy Spirit. We need the Holy Spirit. We need humility. Humility or bust. Without it, the church is doomed. Now let's turn to Philippians 2, verses 1 through 8. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambitions or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. What a vision. What a vision. Brothers and sisters, wouldn't this be a beautiful thing in your homes? Lowliness of mind, perceiving the other better than ourselves, being of one accord, of one mind, beautiful in marriage, beautiful in the church. This is what we need. Paul says there have been any consolation, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit. Have you, have you received anything of the gift of God? Have you seen anything of the love of God in your life? He said... Here it is, then, then be like-minded, having same, the same love, and being of one accord, of one mind, and let nothing be done with selfish ambition, but lowliness of mind. Let each esteem others better than themselves. Let each of you look not to his own interests, but the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant, coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. I think it's instructive that this, this message here from Paul is effectively an imperative, rooted in the indicative. It's always the way Paul does it. doesn't get away from the indicative, does he? That is, this is what Jesus did. Now let's be like him. He's not going to separate himself from the indicative. So we start with the indicative, but don't negate the imperative. We're going to get there. Yes, humility is a gift of God. Yes, humility is a work of God. Yes, humility is an identity as it's expressed in the Beatitudes, but it's also an imperative. It's the all of the above, isn't it? Humble yourself before the mighty hand of God. Be humble. Be of the same mind. Prefer one another. And let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's the context of the imperative. Now we move to the indicative. But think about this, brothers and sisters. Think about this. Satan ruined the world by pride. Jesus saved the world by humility. 
Satan lifted himself up as a god, didn't he? Tempted Eve to the same. He should be as gods. Jesus made himself of no reputation. Satan lifted himself up. Jesus made himself of no reputation. Consider the person of Jesus. Let this mindset be in you. Consider the very Son of God who thought it not something to be grasped after to be equal with God. This wasn't something he had to achieve. He had to get some kind of a, uh, an, an increase in power or authority or anything like that in order for him to be like God or be God or equal with God. He did not see it something that needed to be grasped after. He was already equal in power and glory. He didn't need a promotion. He, he was already at that level. It wasn't something he had to grasp after, yet Satan grasped for it. Satan grasped for it. And man grasped for it. It's the root of all problems in our husband-wife conflicts, our pride, our church squabbles, our wars. It's what's behind all statism. Ye shall be as gods. It's the king of all temptations. I consider it to be the nuclear bomb of all temptations. Ye shall be as God. The temptation to power. The temptation to, to gain some authority independently from God is the great lure that man is after all the time. Satan was going for it. Now man goes for it. But, but Jesus did not see it as something to be grasped after, to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking upon himself the form of a servant, taking upon himself human flesh. That itself is extraordinary, that he should enter into the womb of the Virgin Mary, that he who created life itself, the one who created man, becomes man. Takes upon himself human flesh. Amazing. Amazing that he should descend, that he should humble himself like this, but, but then come to the cross, stand at the cross, and be overwhelmed by the cross as well. Allow yourself to, to feel the full brunt of what is happening at the cross of Christ. See the Son of God on the cross in agony of soul and body, naked. Think of the horror of it speaks to the extent of his humiliation. Nobody's experienced this kind of delta, this, this ultimate, infinite humiliation that occurs for our Savior. And what was the sign over his head? This is the King of the Jews. The King on the cross. The Creator nailed to the tree the holiest, the universal standard of all righteousness, the judge of the earth, the absolute standard of all that is holy, condemned as the lowest sinner, degraded to the lowest point. Consider the dregs of the world. But there he is, smitten by God and afflicted, bearing the curse of our sin and considered as sin itself, the one who who is the source of all that is good and right and the source of law, the source of all that is just and holy, Himself being the very essence of holiness, the one who who said, Thou shalt not commit adultery, becomes adultery for us. 
The one who said, thou shalt not murder. You shall not slash your little babies to pieces in the womb or be angry with your brother without a cause. He has become murder for us. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. That is, you couldn't even look at his face. The horror of his something nobody could handle. This could be one of the reasons why there was darkness over the place. Nobody could have looked at his face. Such horror, such, such a realization of the horror of sin, never experienced by anybody, but experienced by our Lord and Savior on that cross. Nobody could have known the extent, the horrific nature of sin, the, the condemnation of it on the part of the Father Himself turning His face from His Son. Nobody will, could possibly understand it. And that's why we hid, as it were, our faces from Him. His face was more marred than any man. That's what Isaiah 52 says. There's never been somebody so horrified, somebody experienced so much horror, so much humiliation, so much of the degradation and the defilement and the, the horrific nature of sin against the holiness of God. Nobody experiencing it or seeing it or realizing it as much as our Savior. He was a man of sorrow and acquainted with grief for us. So brothers and sisters, this is the, the thing for us. This is our mindset. Let this mindset be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. But what's the principle before us today? Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. But who, who are the meek? Well, Jesus Christ is meek. And He will inherit the earth. The emphasis I know for many of us is that we will inherit the earth. But let's talk about Jesus first, shall we? Tonight, uh, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Let's talk about Jesus. He will inherit the earth. That's first, isn't it? And so, therefore, follow the logic here. Given that all of this has happened, He humbled Himself. He is the meek. All the way to the death of the cross. Then verse 9, therefore. Therefore. Given that He is meek, given that He has humbled Himself to this extent, therefore the Father has highly exalted Him and given Him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. So children, Jesus came down before He went up. That's what we're saying. Jesus was all the way up at the very, very top, and he came all the way down to the very, very bottom. And then the Father raised him all the way back up to the top again. That's, that's the principle here. Jesus experienced the greatest humiliation in all the universe and the greatest exaltation in all eternity. He is the pattern of the principle, but to the extreme. And we follow him. He is the heir of all things. We talk about the meek shall inherit the earth. So let's get to the word inherit now. Ephesians 1 and verse 10 speaks of this, that in the dispensation of the fullness of time, Jesus might gather together in all things, or God will gather 
together in all things in Christ, both that which is in heaven, that which is on the earth, in Jesus. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance. So we also have obtained this inheritance being predestined according to the purpose of His will works all things according to the counsel of His will. And then Romans 8 and verse 16 as well. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs. And then what does it say? And join heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. So you see, we follow Jesus. He suffered. He's exalted. Now it's our turn. And and that's the message. That's the message tonight. So this dismisses all pride of position and academics and titles and wealth and competitions and such. How can we stand before the humbled Son of God Himself in pride? How, How can we stand before God in pride? So my brother and me standing in full view of the cross, there we are, my brother and me. How can we compare ourselves with each other? Our own humiliations couldn't possibly exceed His humiliation. And yet it should have, but it didn't. We should have been there. We should have been humbled like that, but we weren't. And then there's this massive incongruity that takes place with the disciples in the follow-up discussion after Jesus told them he's going to suffer and die. In Mark 10 and verse 33, I'm going to Jerusalem. Son of man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. and They will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And third day he will rise again. They didn't get any of it. They didn't get the resurrection message. They didn't get the other message. They didn't have the heart for it. They were completely oblivious to this entire message. The humiliation and the exaltation. Either way, they didn't get the message at all. It was either a worthless digression in the conversation or a lie from hell, but it had nothing to do with their vision of the kingdom in this passage because what do we get in the very next verse? Then, then, right then, James and John, sons of Zebedee, come to him and said, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. He said to them, What do you want me to do? He said, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, the other on your left. And Jesus said, you don't know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? Because, why? Because they are going to be the followers of Jesus in this process. Brothers and sisters, let's draw this into application. Life is full of choices. Will you avoid the humble path? Will you avoid the risk of getting hurt? The path of suffering and the cross that's this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. A servant is not above his master. Can't get beyond that logic, can you? We, here, here's the Savior dragging his cross down to Golgotha. And what are you going to do? Drive your red sports car behind him, honking the horn? Get out of the way, get out of the way. Or are you going to pull your cross behind him? What's it going to be? Pastors, fellow elders, what's it going to be? A servant is not above his master in these things. To be Christ-like. People say they want to be Christ-like. To be Christ-like is to be whipped. Your reputation trashed. You'll be abused. You'll have blood running down your face. Forty, fifty stripes down your back. Cut to the bone. That's what it is to be Christ-like. That's the vision. Then after all that is done, we're still saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So let's do what Jesus did. Let's preach the word as he preached it. 
Let's open ourselves up for, for the persecutions. Preach the hard messages. Tear down the moralistic facades of the day. Preach the gospel straight and true. It will be offensive. It will be very offensive. If the gospel is preached the way it is, it will be offensive. We proclaim the victory of Jesus Christ at the cross, the defeat of Satan. We say that He came to die on the cross for our sins. You cannot exempt yourself from the grace of God because you're a homosexual or anything else. The grace of God can cover you too. You don't need to justify your sins. Nobody needs to as we're standing under the cross of Christ and receiving that gospel message. One of my favorite stories of the Pigott family who was taken in that terrible persecution in the early 20th century in China. So many missionaries were killed at that time. But the Pigott family is ministering in a certain place and they were arrested by these demonic hordes and they dragging them away from their church and and they took them about 30, 40 miles away. The entire distance they continued to preach. The entire distance. And they preached that night. They were put in prison. And the mother was preaching the gospel to another woman in the, go- in the prison that was convicted of murder. And she was bringing that lady to Jesus. The father was preaching that night. They didn't want to waste a minute. They were taken to the slaughtering block in front of the, 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 the uh, general and and they were, and he just continued to preach. That man preached until he lost his head. He, he continued to preach the gospel to the very end. Brothers and sisters, that's, that's what we're called to do. Or Wormbrand, the Romanian prison. You remember, they would preach, he said. And, and he said there was one of the men, he said, we had a deal. They would beat us and we would preach. It was a good deal, he said. And they dragged off one guy as he's preaching the word to his cellmates. And, and after an hour or so, they heard his screams. They heard the tortures for an hour. They brought the brother back into the cell, threw him down on the floor. And, and the brother pulls himself back up to the pulpit and said, where did I leave off? That's what I'm talking about, brothers and sisters. We have a message. We need to get it out. We shouldn't be afraid of the pushback from our society around us. As lambs to the slaughter, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. And I like to picture the, the lamb has got three broken legs and all his teeth is missing, his ear is shaved off, but he's riding that white horse proclaiming the victory. That's the picture. More than conquerors and yet lambs to the slaughter at the same time. And I think it's instructive in Revelation 5 as a pattern for the followers of Jesus. The appearance of the lamb slain appears with the saints. Between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns, with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out unto all the earth. The the, the lamb still appears as one who has been slain, and yet bears the the appearance of his exaltation he is the lamb on the throne as he was the king on the cross he had an exaltation going there because he got the victory there at the cross for us and he is still bears the appearance of the lamb slain as he's on the throne as well and so we follow the lamb who has the appearance of of that 
of that torture, of, of, that, of that humiliation, and yet in his exaltation. And this, this humiliation and exaltation converges in this most amazing way in the life of the Christian. And that's what we read here in Romans chapter 8. More than conquerors, yet lambs to the slaughter at the same time. We embrace the shame of Jesus, or better yet, we despise the shame of the world for our love for Jesus. Look into Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who, for the, the joy that was set before him, despised the shame. Despised the shame. We, we despise the shame. We spit on the spit, so to speak. And I thought of the story from the 1970s in communist China as the... Uh, the pastor was reading from the Bible. These men with guns broke into the home, terrorizing the believers, gathered there to worship. The communists shouted these insults. They threatened to kill the Christians. The leading officer pointed his gun at the pastor's head. Hand me your Bible, he demanded. Reluctantly, the pastor handed over his Bible, his prized possession, with a sneer on his face. The guard threw the Word of God on the floor at his feet. He glared at the congregation. We will let you go, but first you must spit on this book of lies. Anyone who refuses will be shot the soldier pointed his gun at one of the guys. You first. The man slowly got up, knelt down by the Bible, reluctantly spit on the Bible, praying, Father, please forgive me. Stood up, walked out the door. Soldiers stood back, allowed him to leave. Okay, you. The soldiers nudged a woman forward. She spat a little. She too was allowed to leave. Quietly, a young girl, 16, 17 years of age, voluntarily stepped forward. Overcome with love for her Lord Jesus, she knelt down, picked up the Bible, wiped off the spit with her dress. What have they done to your word? Please forgive them, she said. The communist soldiers put the pistol to her head and pulled the trigger. That's what I'm talking about. Embrace the shame of Jesus. Despise the shame. Spit on the spit, so to speak. We created a detente with the world. I think we have at points. Brothers and sisters, if you don't get persecuted yourself, share in the persecutions of others. This is the time to do it. Recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated. See, there it is, partners with those so treated, for you have compassion on those in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. So, brothers and sisters, there is, I think, a great benefit to persecutions that are rising in our country today. Our petty little differences in the churches and denominations are obliterated when we're thrown in the same prison cell and we're beaten every day by the same persecutors. And that became, by the way, the way in which we paved the way to the best unity we've ever enjoyed with the churches in our community. It was amazing when during the COVID months or weeks, I turned to Pastor Jim, who's the pastor of the little Bible church down the street. I said, we're opening our church. He said, I'm opening mine too. We said, okay, we're going to prison together and we'll sing the hymns together in the cell. And, and, and that was it. That sealed that relationship between us and other brothers from other denominations. Praise God for that. we got to stop waste, wasting kingdom resources and energy fighting each other's guys. The antithesis must become obvious again. Pastors are almost in despair today over the rampant disunity in our churches. The absurdity of people moving from the CREC to the CPC and back to the CREC and over to the OPC and back to the CREC Guys, it's a mess out there. And a little persecution is going to help us. 
We can't turn this into a circular firing squad. And the one word we need here is persecution. We need to figure out who the enemy is in the conflict. And it's humility that drives the unity. Listen to Isaiah 11.3. The envy also of Ephraim shall depart. The adversaries of Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not envy Judah anymore. And Judah shall not vex Ephraim. But they shall fly upon the shoulders of the Philistines toward the west. They shall spoil them of the east together. They shall lay their hand upon Edom and Moab. And the children of Ammon shall obey them. Praise God for that, huh? Pulling a little bit of the north and the south, Ephraim and Judah back together in order to take on the enemies of God. This is what we need. There's ever been a time in Christendom in which we've needed this. It's now. But it will only come about by humility and taking up the cross and following Jesus. Let me close. Jesus, our Lord, stooped to conquer. He stooped to conquer. And this too must be our modus operandi. This is how it's done. This is how we roll. There's no other modus operandi in ministry, in family life, in Christian life. This is it. This is how we conquer. We stoop to conquer. We are humbled. We go through the valley of humiliation. And when we do, we should never think, this is wrong. This shouldn't be. This is inappropriate for Christians. No, this is entirely right. So as we face the enemy, as we face the slanders, as we as elders or pastors our, our, our work is somewhat interrupted by the beatings. That is the work. That is the process. That is the modus operandi for the victory itself. This is the way it should be. Humility here and now. Lowliness here. Exaltation later. We are Lazarus here. We're not Dives. We're persecuted here. We are empty here. We're unnoticed. We're unknown. And we're comfortable with that. I has not seen nor ear heard, nor has it entered in the heart of man the things that God has prepared for those who love him. It will blow your mind what is waiting for us. Jesus had his eye on the hope that was set before him, and if he knew what was happening and he could despise the shame in the face of his humiliation, brothers and sisters, it's good enough for us too. So our lives must follow the pattern of Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. That's this life pattern. This is the modus operandi. This is the rhythm of our lives. It's the cross and then the crown. This is the path of our Savior. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, O God, open our minds, renew our minds. Come, Holy Spirit, now. Please teach us the humility of Jesus. Give us this mind tonight. Father God, that we would follow in the footsteps of Jesus that we be overwhelmed with the view of His death for us, His humiliation, the ultimate humiliation on that cross for us, paying the price, receiving the curse for us. Have mercy on us, O God. Have mercy on us. O God, we need Your Spirit. We need humility. That we would live the life of Christ that we would deny ourselves, take up the cross daily, and follow Jesus, our Savior and our Lord. Amen.